folks showed up to squat in some abandoned house, or they were more afraid of you than you were of them. The wind off of the ocean was bitter cold, and it never ceased. The cool breeze of a summer day at the beach didn't go away in the winter. The house was insulated, barely, but it wasn't nearly enough. The wind broke through the cracks of the old windows and the house heaved with the gusts, as though it were also exhausted by the battle with the crisp air. Fortunately, there was a wood stove in the house. It looked like it hadn't been used literally in decades, and it seemed too small to actually heat the house, but it was better than nothing. Scavenging for wood without being seen was hard, and didn't last for long. Within a few days, you'd seen folks in the neighborhood, and they'd seen you. No one was ready to confront this reality on either side, so you just kept doing what you could not to be noticed, despite the fact it was practically pointless. You knew it wouldn't last forever, but you did what you had to for the time being. Then, one morning, there was a knock at the door. Everyone froze, even the children. It was the moment of truth. You were the only adult in the room, so despite your best efforts, it was your decision to make. Murderers don't knock, you think to yourself, so there wouldn't be a gunfight, at least. A middle-aged man with deep wrinkles and the dark tan of someone who'd spent his life at sea stood before you as the door slinked open. You could tell by the way his skin hung that he had once been a mammoth of a man who had been whittled away by food shortages. Despite this, he had a threatening aura about him. He stuck out his hand. Charlie, he said. After a short pause, he continued. You don't look like the Petersons, which he followed with a chuckle. Relax, son, he said as he put his hand on your shoulder. You flinched, but didn't back away. This here's a small community. Nothing happened, even now, that not everyone knows. We're not afraid of y'all. You look like good people. He pointed to the two girls playing with the remains of a Scrabble game. Those yours? Before you had a chance to respond, he continued. Heck no. They're maybe 15 years younger than you and don't look a damn like you. You're good people. Nothing in apocalyptic movies books, or any other media prepared you for Charlie, but you still weren't letting your guard down. If you're not afraid of us, why are you here, you ask. You were surprised by the bluntness that slipped from your mouth. It wasn't like you. You'd spent your whole life trying to not piss people off, and here you were asking a larger, more muscled stranger why he was bothering you after you broke into his neighbor's house. Wild times. Wanted to see if you needed a cup of sugar, like a good neighbor, he says, a smile on his face. We take care of our own around here, so you can be with us or you can be against us, but you can't be in between. I'm sure I won't be the first visitor you get, so keep that in mind. I'll be seeing you. With that, he turned to leave with a slow, sauntering step. You didn't respond. What the fuck was that all about, you think? 
you look back at the two girls on the floor. They only seem remotely phased about the experience now. Maybe this would be alright. Maybe you'd stumbled on a good, small community that was not just surviving, but living together. Maybe it didn't have to just be you and your crew against the world. Or maybe you were just a stupid kid who doesn't have the common sense to survive. Thanks for joining us again. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcasts. At this time, we don't offer any extras to folks for donating. Knowledge is for everyone. And if we get more money than we need, we'll be donating it to good causes. And we'll keep you in the loop. Thank you to our two most recent Patreons, MJ Wallace and Sam Gates. You guys make it possible for us to do what we do. I personally have to say, when Elliot and I started this process, a part of me thought that maybe literally like five people would listen to this podcast and they'd all stop after the first episode if they made it through the entire thing. And here we are, closing in on our 10th episode, and folks are willing to contribute to what we are doing, and it's truly humbling. Despite my best predictions, I have been absolutely wrong, and we are getting hundreds of listens, and it means the world to both of us. Thank you all. Needless to say, while we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks find the podcast, and hopefully join us on our journey. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. Pretty much everything posted is me, so come say hi. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. In the last episode in the series on ecology, we had discussed the management of fruit trees and how to frame up the dialogue on how to properly care and plan for your orchard. We discussed how we can use our knowledge of how forests work to be effective managers of fruit trees, and in this episode we're going to do the same, but along the lines of creating comprehensive ground management, often called orchard floor management, unless you are familiar with permaculture, in which case it's often called fruit tree guild management, for your fruit trees that both benefit them, the soil, and you. If you think back to our episode on soil, there are a few key functions soil plays in providing successful habitats, aeration for oxygen, moisture retention for water intake, and nutrients and nutrient accessibility through nematodes, bacteria, and fungi. We talked a bit about how no-till is a better method to maintain the soil structure and biological community, which allows for easy transfer of nutrients, water, and oxygen to the roots of plants. We further discussed the role of ground cover to protect the soil from extreme temperatures, reducing soil microorganism biodiversity loss, and the role ground cover can play in building biomass. I want to use this knowledge and apply it in a practical sense for developing land into edible food forests. To do this, we need to understand 
how to A, properly plant your fruit trees, whether they are rootstock with a scion grafted to it, or if they're a tree purchased from a big box store with a soil and root ball, and B, how to create regenerative plant communities, often called guilds, that create sustainable communities that reduce the need for pesticides and fertilizers. I've been hesitant to talk about guilds in describing this episode, and for good reason. Here's a definition of fruit tree guilds I pulled from a permaculture website, and we'll use this as our basis of understanding. The goal of the guild is to underplant a central element, such as a fruit or nut tree, with plants that are highly useful, multifunctional, and that might naturally be found growing together. End quote. In your traditional vegetable garden, you've heard the term companion planting, which is essentially the same thing, except this is under the guise of doing all of the things nature needs by selecting specific plants to mimic nature. I have a lot of problems with the concept of companion planting, especially when we are talking about the complexities of multi-species companion plantings. If you're not familiar with companion planting, it's very simple, what might seem like a common sense idea. The basic premise is that we try to plant our crops in ways where they are able to benefit one another. For example, planting certain flowers near a vegetable garden to draw pests away from your vegetables you want to harvest. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? Well, no, not really. Let's pick on the example above. Now, if we're planting aphid-attracting plants near our vegetables, are they drawing aphids away from our vegetables, or are they making the whole larger area more attractive to aphids, ultimately making the aphid problem even larger? At this point, there isn't a lot of empirical evidence one way or the other. Because of that, and for my own 100% anecdotal evidence, I'm not totally sold on the concept as a be-all, end-all construct. One of my first gardens as an adult was built completely on this method, and it worked out great. But the funny thing was, I accidentally did the opposite, and planted all of the things that shouldn't be planted together right next to each other. The following year, I did it again, and it wasn't a great year. So, to me, it's proven to be unhelpful at best, and potentially damaging at worst in the sense that it might cause you to grow plants you don't want or need taking up space in your small garden where you could have had a more productive produce utilizing the space. And while there isn't a ton of evidence out there for whether or not companion planting works, there is some specific examples that we can cover in a little bit. But in reality, the whole concept goes in the face of permaculture's goal of working with nature because in fact, we are trying to break nature down into the sum of its parts and create a Frankenstein system most of the plants recommended for your guild have no relation to one another in nature and often come from different continents. That doesn't mean they can't work, but the logic of mimicking nature is false and instead we are operating as outsiders of the natural world, tinking with and using our limited understanding to arrogantly create a self-sustaining system with unnatural fruit trees as the foundation of it. Despite this, when we look at permaculture guilds, we often see apples as that focal point. However, none of the understory is from that same region. That doesn't mean they can't work. 
but the logic of mimicking nature is false and falls under that general naturalist idea that we always see everywhere that isn't based in any reality. That said, there is some evidence-based companion planting that does work. It just usually isn't something like what you see in an article, where it might say, plant X near Y and you won't have this problem you've always had. It will likely be largely pragmatic and with marginal benefits, which in the case of fruit trees may take years to appreciate in value. Ultimately, we'll talk about some companion planting methodologies and go through why they usually don't work in another episode. For now, I want to cover both sides of this before we do take some of the things that are evidence-based from guilds that we will be applying to our fruit tree understories. One of the main reasons I wanted to discuss fruit tree management techniques before the actual planting of the fruit trees, as well as what to plant around your fruit trees, stems from the fact that with proper fruit tree training, light access for your understory will be much higher and ultimately will significantly impact which plants will survive and thrive as ground cover. So if you do a quick Google search for things like fruit tree guilds, you'll see a variety of suggestions. Some that are extremely simple to ones that have dozens and dozens of plants. Some are designed to maximize food production. That is, every understory planting produces some food for you to eat, and others are designed to reduce tree maintenance. I'd argue both of these miss the mark a bit. Starting with the food production guild methodology. Some of the more common things you'll see in this model reflect a permaculture method called stacking. The general idea is, think back to the forest succession discussion, highly stratified forests are more sustainable, resilient, and can host higher amounts of diversity, maximizing biomass, or how much production can be had on one space. Permaculturalists generally will try to apply this methodology to their five-year-old fruit tree by planting a shrub layer, a ground cover layer, and a root crop, and sometimes even a vine, to maximize the utility of the 10 by 10 space where they've put their fruit tree. I've been to multiple food forest models, and these systems generally become very messy, unmanageable, and often because of the layering, management of the fruit tree becomes a challenge because people don't want to damage the understory, which is also susceptible to damage because it's still new. This leads to poor tree growth, or overgrowth, which ultimately lowers fruit production from your fruit tree and lowers fruit production from your understory. Further, by creating a diversity of foods, all of which are usually foods that are attractive to wildlife, you're creating a giant target for your local wildlife to come and enjoy. Certain species, like blackberries and raspberries, are almost always listed as an option to provide you fruit while also protecting the trees because of their thorns, but often within a few years, these can grow unruly and take over. Besides, generally speaking, unless you're planting a thicket that's a few feet wide circling the tree, deer will still be able to reach around them, so they're not nearly as effective as you might think. Another option that's very common are blueberries, which do well in some shade, but require much different soil pH from fruit trees, so they will almost always struggle in these conditions. In terms of a vine for your fruit tree, simply put, vines will kill weak mature trees, never mind vulnerable young trees, 
vines can grow quickly, even as first and second year plants, with growth reaching 20 feet in a year. That will kill your fruit tree. Do not do it. Even if you have a mature fruit tree, if your tree is well managed and thinned appropriately for maximum fruit production, so you have those properly angled branches, the tree will be able to carry their fruit production, but not much more. Adding in another plant's fruit and you'll end up with broken branches, and the vine will create more shade, reducing fruit production and fruit quality below the shade. Generally, vines will try to climb to the top of your tree and will shade out everything below it. Lastly, folks will try to use things like garlic and onions to work as a repellent to moles and other underground creatures, which have some effect, but alliums require high sunlight to succeed and generally are not a good fit for this space, despite what all of the Pinterest graphics might suggest. Further, if your tree is small and they do get the sunlight they need to thrive, pulling them out may damage the roots of your fruit tree, which could lead to shock and stunting growth. Personally, a dozen heads of garlic or onions are not worth a year's worth of fruit tree growth. Now, on the flip side, folks will many times Google, what does my fruit tree need to thrive, and a bunch of different nutrients will come up, as well as recommendations for and against grass and clover, as well as recommendations for and against wood chips, and so on, and so on. Most, if not all, of the evidence is anecdotal. In one particular graphic I looked at, I saw 25 types of plants recommended for beneath your fruit tree, each with a specific use. That's insane. Diversity isn't a bad thing, but we have to remember that we want plants that can work together without competing. Our goal is that instead of competition, each plant is using resources not utilized by other plants. There is no way 25 different species don't overlap in where they harvest their resources. Think about a forest. Generally speaking, the diversity per 10 square feet is not 25 different large shrubs, ground cover, etc. Generally, you might have a few species per layer, and even then it depends on if you have a spring species and a fall species for a cover crop or something like that. So I think that's where we should start. We don't want to have as much variety as possible, but as much variety as necessary so they don't overlap and compete. We are trying to maximize production, maximize solar efficiency, and use the strengths of some plants to keep our fruits from being totally annihilated by wildlife. With that in mind, let's start with what we do know. Our fruit trees need nitrogen. We can fix nitrogen in a few ways, and chances are you're planting a fruit tree somewhere that likely has or recently had grass. Traditional yards have a nutrient zap because we grow a species that doesn't belong in a place where it is a monoculture, which isn't good for resistance to disease, bugs, or for nutrient cycling. We cut our grass and take away nutrients by dumping the cuttings somewhere else. And the only way to keep our grass green and healthy is to either allow another species to move in to fix that nitrogen or to add it artificially. Either you've been adding it artificially or a clover or a vetch or some other kind of pea has moved into your yard. Generally, my methodology is that if a species has moved into that area, help it. If you have vetch or snow peas or clover or alfalfa working its way through your yard, plant more of it. 
The biological conditions of the soil are best suited for it, so work with nature. Nitrogen-fixing plants are almost exclusively from the legume family, as well as a handful of other species such as alder, but for most purposes, it's worth focusing your energy on integrating legumes. Further, there are some species that do well at accumulating nutrients from the soil deep down, such as comfrey and sunflowers. Ideally, though, if you're planting in a place where there used to be grass, it makes a lot more sense to focus on alfalfa, clover, or vetch. Ideally, you would want to do something that is a perennial, so you don't have to keep planting it. Which brings us to the next point. How do you plant a fruit tree? There's so much conflicting advice out there. I want to remind you as a listener to think about what we have talked about in terms of nature. The traditional method of growing trees suggests something along these lines. Dig a hole twice the size of your root ball. Add fresh compost and, depending on time of year, some fertilizer to accelerate root growth. Gently pack it down and you're good to go. The compost is a slow-release fertilizer and the fertilizer is quickly activated in the soil to help deal with the shock of transplant. Makes sense, right? I mean, really, I understand why this methodology was followed for so long. It still is. However, when we understand the biological conditions of the soil, it makes less sense. We are destroying the soil community by digging it up, limiting interaction of the roots with the native biological community, which will stay there long after the biological community from the compost has gone, and you stress the plant with the added fertilizers. Instead, we should look to nature for an effective planting method. We want to integrate the roots into the soil community as quickly as possible without damaging the soil community, and we want to reduce the amount of damage done by digging as little as possible. By removing as much excess soil from the root ball as possible and digging the hole as small as possible, you reduce the damage and distance between the two biological communities. If we try to mix the dug up soil with the soil we were able to remove from the root ball, we can help accelerate the process of the microbiology around the tree changing without shocking the tree. This also helps the tree quickly access the nutrients in the soil. If you're planting a bare root sapling, the same idea applies. Try to slice a hole in the soil large enough for the roots to get in the ground and allow it to close right up without disturbing the soil at all. Now, when you go to plant your fruit tree, you'll likely see a line around 6 inches to a foot down where the soil content changes drastically. This is likely, again, for most folks in urban and suburban sprawl, the line where topsoil was brought in to cover the native soil in order to grow grass and live the suburban dream. If the gradient is as clear cut, you are possibly digging into native topsoil, in which case, cool. Either way, you're able to see below this layer what the tree roots are really working with. Is it sandy, heavy, hard clay, rocky? If it's sandy, you want to make sure to plant ground cover and bushes that are a bit more resilient in dry conditions and can withstand lower pH, which is common in sandy soils. Again, think about your forests. 
Are there lots of pine trees growing in your area that hasn't been developed? If there are, you probably have a lower pH in your native soil, and it's probably pretty sandy. The great thing about plants like clover is that there are a large range of clovers to meet the demands of different soil pHs, so you can likely find one for your particular needs. Additionally, you'll notice that most plants that are suited for sandy soils are also suited for lower pH soil. Those things generally stick together, so if a plant that you're interested in, say a specific clover, is listed as suitable for sandy soil, you know it probably will be fine with that lower pH as well. Additionally, if you remember from the soil episode, we had talked about how sandy soil does a poor job of retaining both water and nutrients. So it will be important to incorporate plants that are good at mining nutrients from deep in the soil, like comfrey, into your guild. If your soil is harder, plants that can do better in more moist conditions are helpful, and it's imperative to consider using plants that do well at breaking up compact soil. Roots like radishes and sunflowers are really great for this. Selections like timothy grass are great ground cover that can withstand damp conditions and can be great fodder for livestock if you're planning on running livestock through your orchard, which is also a great way to cycle the nutrients of the grass back into the topsoil. Now, what if the topsoil is very thin? You'll want to build it up because that's where the biological community that helps nutrients become accessible for plants live so it's imperative to grow topsoil as quickly as possible. In an episode we'll be doing in the future on pasture management, it might actually be about three episodes from now, we'll cover some of this in much more detail, along with some of the specifics on pasture grass, grains, and so on. And I do think we covered some of this in an earlier episode, I believe one of the soil episodes, but we need to try to build up the biomass for the soil in a way that reflects the natural process of soil building. We're not going to just dump a foot of compost on the ground. It will work for the short term, but I don't think it really is a real solution to your problem, nor is it a practical solution. The way we naturally build up soil is pretty straightforward, actually. Much like in nature, our goal is to build soil using a mix of things that break down quickly, such as leaf litter, small scraps of soft vegetables and fruits, as well as natural products with higher lignin content, that is, woody material. We can mix natural compost if you are composting your food waste with local leaf litter and mix it up with these other materials, which generally includes more leaves, paper, cardboard, and wood chips to create a covering for the soil which gives access to the content to the biological community already within the soil, as well as introducing other biological communities from your compost, which have thrived in the compost pile because they accelerate at breaking down those particular types of matter to help accelerate the process. The largest pieces, the wood chips, can take up to five years to break down, which might sound like a long time, but is actually an extremely quick process because of the high surface area of the wood chips versus a log falling in the woods which can take up to 100 years to break down. The added benefit to this method is that the litter coverage of the soil also retains moisture within the soil, reducing your need to water, 
while also helping build the soil's organic matter. Your first thought might be, well, I know that wood chips are easy to come by, but why not accelerate the process of building biomass by only using low lignin materials? Then it will break down more quickly, building my soil more quickly. That's a valid point. And the answer is complicated, so I apologize in advance for the next paragraph. Relative to most other plant-derived organic substances, lignin is resistant to mineralization by soil microorganisms. That just means it's tough to break down by the biological soil community. The resilience of lignin is due to the fact that only a few microorganisms, for example, white rot fungi and a few bacterial species, can completely degrade polyphenols, that is, micronutrients, and catabolism, that is, breaking down of complex molecules and organisms into small, more accessible ones, is often required to fully break down plant lignin. Consequently, lignin directly and or indirectly influences soil microbial community structure, which in turn controls soil quality through the provision of several key ecosystem services. It reduces the emissions of greenhouse gases from soil, retains soluble nutrients, promotes soil aggregate formation, that is, those networks formed by the fungal community, and helps them stabilize, reducing soil erosion and creating bioremediation and detoxification of natural and man-made pollutants. So yeah, incorporating lignin into our soil biology, while somewhat inconvenient, is super important, especially if you live in an area where there was plenty of pollution in the past. Now, if you're looking to build that biomass on your soil quickly and without using extensive external inputs, it's worth looking for leafy perennials that respond well to getting cut down, particularly ones that are nutrient-dense. That's why one particular plant that is popular in permaculture has become so popular, comfrey. It's great at mining nutrients in the soil, is extremely leafy without a significant amount of lignin, and it grows quickly as well as responding well to chop and drop, the name for cutting plants down and using the leaf litter to cover the soil. And I can talk about compost all day, but I don't want to get in too deep on this subject, at least here. So let's change gears a little bit. We've covered the need to build new soil, how we can do that, the need to make sure your trees are getting nitrogen from plants such as comfrey, clover, alfalfa, among many others. What are some of the other goals of common guild setups, and are they based in any scientific evidence? One area that has seemed to garner attention is the idea of creating pollinator attractors to maximize fruit production. The theory goes that by creating flower-heavy guilds, we can attract more pollinators to your fruit trees, ensuring each flower will be pollinated and will produce fruit for you. Dill, chamomile, fennel, purple coneflower, yarrow, and mint are common recommendations for pollinator plantings for fruit tree guilds. Makes sense. On the surface, it absolutely does. But let's think about it a little deeper, and I'm going to pick on apple trees, since they're the most common fruit tree in the United States. When do those herbs usually flower? They usually flower in June and July, and some even in August. While apple trees typically flower in April through May, 
taking a few minutes to think about these methods highlights some of the inconsistencies in these theories. Further, there's no evidence that any of this works. There's been zero scientific testing. To be fair though, anything that doesn't apply to large-scale farming is rarely tested, and even things like high-intensive grazing have only had a handful of papers written on them with evidence. And because of the complexity of systems like this, many of that evidence is in dispute. So, what would I suggest if you're pollinator curious? Pick some perennial flowers that bloom at the same time as your fruit tree would be a good start. Try to keep those plants from drawing large amount of nutrients, so stick with smaller flowers because they will compete for nutrients with your fruit tree. Try to keep your flower size similar to the fruit tree, and if possible, even in the same family. Keep in mind that in complex systems, while many flowers can be pollinated by multiple species, there are specialists that will only be able to pollinate certain sized flowers, so there's no benefit in attracting specialists that can't pollinate your fruit tree, right? I think that makes sense. Also, bonus points if the flower is edible. The third most common area is really two, but I think they fall under a dichotomy of good and bad, and that's along the lines of attracting good insects and repelling bad insects. The one most folks are familiar with are marigolds near your tomato plants, which supposedly deter whiteflies. Now, if you Google it really quick on the internet, you'll see there will be articles, and I'm not going to point fingers at particular publishers, that will say, science has proven this old wives' tale is true. I want to give you a few sentences from the abstract of the evidence of this to help frame up the questionable nature of how evidence is translated. The paper is entitled, Companion Planting with French Marigolds Protects Tomato Plants from Glasshouse Whiteflies Through the Emission of Airborne Limonene. And I quote, Here we present two large-scale glasshouse trials corresponding to the two main ways growers are likely to use marigolds to control whiteflies. In the first, marigolds are grown next to the tomato, throughout the growing period and we quantify whitefly population growth from the seedling stage over a 48-day infestation period. Here we show that association with marigolds significantly slows whitefly population development. Introducing additional whitefly attractive quote-unquote pull plants around the perimeter of plots has little effect for reducing the proportion of marigolds and introducing other non-hosts of whiteflies, basil, nasturtium, and Chinese cabbage also reduces whitefly population on tomato. End quote. In other words, using those pull plants, that is, plants that are supposed to attract the whiteflies away from the tomatoes, have a negligible effect, while marigolds release a specific chemical in the air that is measurably effective in an isolated situation. Whether or not it has any meaningful impact in a garden is anecdotal at this point, but again, I think it's worth being aware of how the arguments made in defense of companion planting, and even when there is research done, how that is translated by journalists. With this in mind, let's talk a bit about this concept within the context of fruit trees. What recommendations are there, and what is their purpose in the guild? 
Generally, these plants that are meant to deter bugs are smelly plants. Things like yarrow, mint, bee balm, which is a mint but usually listed separately, fennel, garlic, onions, even tobacco, among others. I feel like this episode is becoming a weird mix of research and gardening because there's so much fake information out there on the subject since it overlaps so heavily with naturalism, which is 90% not evidence-based. Again, if you Google plants that repel bugs, finding primary source documents is near impossible. There's even a Wikipedia page just about plants that repel insects, and the sources are mostly spotty newspapers and gardening websites. Very little of it is based in actual science. So what actually has evidence? Some research was done in 2011 to analyze the new trend of plant-based repellents, titled Plant-Based Insect Repellents, a review of their effectiveness, development, and testing, which seems to be the only research I could find without access to JSTOR or another research portal, and there is some evidence for time in mint being effective. That said, it was focused on mosquitoes that we don't like, not the ones our plants don't like. There isn't much evidence for any of this at all. That said, I would make the case that mimicking nature, as in creating a diverse array of plants without going over the top, is a good way to limit the risk of one particular pest being attracted to your fruit area. Again, I'll reiterate, it's important to plant species that won't inhibit your ability to manage your primary concern, the fruit tree. You'll notice I haven't mentioned having a shrub layer at all, despite comparing all of the other areas covered in most permaculture fruit guilds. There's a reason for this. Well, actually, a few. The first is that permaculture guilds don't usually require them for any benefit of the tree, rather as a benefit for you in terms of fruit production. So, in terms of science-based planning, there's really nothing to argue here. It's a totally optional thing to include. That said, it's important to remember that if you do plant a shrub, you'll have to work around it when you're pruning and harvesting. If enough sun is getting to the shrub layer for blackberries to grow directly below your canopy in any meaningful volume, your canopy is probably on the verge of being too thin. What I do do, however, is planting specific fruit berries that I don't mind trimming back significantly between my two fruit trees which is where they can benefit from the thin canopy coverage, but would be on the cusp of what would be the tree edge. Currently, I'm growing sea berries and gojis in this area, which I don't need a lot of and mostly feed my animals. It might seem like I spent an entire episode saying, it's all bullshit. Well, it isn't all useless, but I think the natural movement, especially the permaculture movement, is so focused on articulating the benefits of working with nature to effectively manage our gardens that it gets swept up in trying to prove things that aren't true and focusing on a wow factor. Plus, I mean, who would come take their permaculture development courses if they didn't have all the answers to everything? Which brings me to my final point. I don't have the answers for everything, and anyone that claims they do is probably a bullshitter. While all the information I presented here is based on my own research, some of which has been reaffirmed anecdotally, this doesn't mean that any of the guild stuff 
is specifically untrue. The reality is that a lot of this isn't profitable and our research tends to focus on areas that are profitable, primarily maximizing monoculture crop production. I worked with what was available for resources, and if you do find something that proves me wrong, please let me know. As far as I'm concerned, though, I haven't seen any evidence, whether in person on permaculture food farms or in my own practice, that proves a lot of this works. So that said, there are those things that I discussed that worked. Be pragmatic about these systems that are put out there, and keep in mind at the end of the day, most permaculture systems are trying to sell you a product. Whether it's a class, or a consultant, or to hire you to be a consultant after you take their class. There's no quick secrets out there to beat nature. If we understand how nature works, we can work with it effectively and maximize production. All it takes is a little bit of basic knowledge about how nature works for us to leverage that knowledge to make nature work better. The second that we start thinking that we know better than nature, that is, we take these plants from around the globe and make them work together as though we can create a closed-loop system that nature hasn't thought of, that's where we get into trouble. So this is a quick little primer about how you want to think about what you're going to put around your fruit trees. Unfortunately, it's not a simple plug and play like YouTubers and permaculturalists sometimes like to suggest, and each conditions require different plants. Further, you have to be realistic about the amount of time you want to invest in maintaining your system, and what are your goals? Do you want to maximize your fruit tree production and everything else is secondary, or do you want a variety of fruit, maybe not at peak production efficiency or the best quality, but with a healthy variety? But you might not be up for that yet. It can be daunting to plant 10 different varieties of fruit in one spot. Everyone's situation is unique, and that's okay. You might think you'd rather be safe than sorry and follow companion planting methods. That's fine. There's no evidence that I saw that they're bad for your plants. What works for you might not work for other people, and vice versa. That's the beauty of gardening. One last thing I do want to bring up on this subject. There's a very complicated dialogue currently going on within permaculture and indigenous farming practices. The knowledge of indigenous farming is significantly different than the mass-produced permaculture knowledge that's being pumped out to make money. When I discuss saying that a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense, I'm not talking about those indigenous practices. It's worth understanding that ancestral knowledge that has existed in communities is far more valuable than the topical understanding of science that we have at this point, especially in relation to things that we're talking about, where there hasn't been much research done. Communities have existed for thousands of years, farming specific ways, and a few quick studies isn't going to debunk that amount of knowledge. So please don't take this episode as in any way an attack on that indigenous knowledge. Now, what do I personally do with my fruit trees? I use comfrey, orchard grass, timothy grass, clover, alfalfa, thyme, and garlic chives. I don't use mint because it's incredibly invasive and my birds don't have much interest in it. Everything I've personally chosen for my fruit tree guilds, 
I have no intention of harvesting for my own personal use. So it doesn't need to stay sanitary. And if my chickens, ducks, or goats want to eat it or use it as toilet paper, there's no love lost. Further, everything I have planted I can get run over with the occasional lawnmower without killing it, which is an added bonus. I generally like to look to how trees existed in nature as a guide, and if nature isn't readily available, to how ancient farms managed those trees. So, for apple trees, it makes sense to look to Kyrgyzstan, their native lands, where they are grown in silvo pasture along walnuts. These trees are grown in massive tracts together, with a mix of other various native trees, and the understories largely wild grasses, cloves, and other short annuals and perennials. So that's what I try to mimic, while also trying to maximize nutrient availability and soil health for my trees. Despite the arguments by many gardeners that grasses compete with fruit trees for resources, fruit trees evolved with grasses to encompass the same environment, so I don't think it's as large of a problem as most folks would like you to believe. The biggest arguments against grass is that it competes with resources and can harbor pests if it starts to get very long. Oddly enough, these are the same arguments against mulch. The alternatives are chemical application to kill everything below the tree, including the microbiology in the soil, and plastic covering of the soil, which for us in a long-term prep situation aren't really even an option. I'd like to unpack this real quick and make the point of why having some kind of livestock is so beneficial. They will work to keep your grass short, return nutrients to the soil, and eat any rodents that show up and try to compete with them for that food. There's nothing you can do about those issues with mulch, so to me, grass seems like a clear winner, with a livestock caveat. This example I brought up of the apple and walnut forest brings up the concept of super gilts, which in case the name doesn't totally give it away, is the idea that multiple tree guilds together create larger guilds. Guilds of guilds. Yeah, I'm getting tired of that word too. There doesn't seem to be any cohesive suggestions in the permaculture world of what benefit these super guilds have. They usually only refer to them in order to use them to create things like wind borders and to create buffers between various tree guilds that don't do together. And oddly enough, the common example comes from Toby Hemingway's book Guy's Garden, which is apple and walnut guilds. Walnuts release a chemical called juglone, which decreases competition from other plants by stunting or killing them, and he suggests creating a buffer for fruit trees from them. Oddly enough, walnuts and apples grow natively together, so I wouldn't take this piece of advice. I will say, despite that nugget, his book is really great, and I do recommend checking it out if this is all new to you. Eliza Goodman, a farmer out in Maryland, has developed an incredible coppicing supergill type system integrating walnuts and apples by pollarding the walnut trees, keeping them from growing extensively, and running pigs underneath it as a silvopasture system, like what is done in Kyrgyzstan. She has visited there and was amazed by their agricultural practices and was able to successfully build her model based on that, flying in the face of what was supposed to be possible. Which brings me to my last point. Our understanding of what can and can't be done at this point is so shallow. We may be able to study galaxies far away, 
but we barely understand the soil beneath our feet. All of this is just a guideline based on what we know. As stewards of the land, we must take the scientific knowledge we have today and compare it to both historical and anecdotal advice we are given to see what does and doesn't make sense. No one has the answers, and we are relearning many skills we had once taken for granted for a millennia. Take your time. Don't become too overwhelmed. But have a good foundational knowledge to go into these subject areas with your eyes open. And have fun. Have fun planning and planting and tasting the produce you create. And hopefully, maybe, we won't have to do this just to survive but to thrive. I hope you enjoyed this episode on planting and planting your fruit trees as well as covering the soil beneath them. In the next episode, we'll actually be getting into formal prepping. Thanks for listening. As always, this is Andy and this is the Poor Pro's Moment.